This is the Evergreen Empire. Green grow the forests and fair flow the streams. The gentle deer grazes, the wild blossom gleams. From ocean wave raging to mountain serene. All nature's proclaiming our land's evergreen. Welcome to Columbia Conversations. I'm Felix Bennell, editor of Columbia Magazine for the Washington State Historical Society. On this episode, we speak with author Amber Casali about her new publication, Hiking Washington's Fire Lookouts, from Mountaineers Books. It's a how-to guide to our state's historic forest fire lookouts, and it even includes some fire lookout camping etiquette. It does really vary. I've gotten to places by early afternoon, and someone was already planning to stay there that night. And I've also been places where there wasn't anyone. It just really, just really depends. Amber Casali was born in Seattle, and she works in marketing as a writer and editor. And she's also a pretty dedicated hiker and mountaineer. I spoke with Amber Casali by phone from her home in Seattle. Amber Casali is joining us. She's the author of Hiking Washington's Fire Lookouts, which came out earlier this year from Mountaineers Books. Uh, my question right off the bat, because I love fire lookouts. I love Northwest history. And there's something about, I don't know whether it's like railroad trains or lighthouses. Why do you think people are attracted to fire lookouts? Yeah, I think that it is the the juxtaposition of um, this, this cabin, this um, this cozy place on top of a mountain where a person lives for a short period of the year, kind of combined with the the wilderness setting and you know the grueling hike to get there, it's just such a such a unique um, such a unique setting of the the man the man made structure and purpose within the wilderness. Yeah, and I hadn't ever I've never been hiking and stumbled across one of these things, but I imagine that must happen sometimes. But how did you decide to write this book, or how did the book come together? Yeah, um, I had been to a handful. <clears throat> excuse me, I've been to a handful of of lookouts in Washington, and and just really loved them. They just really struck me as as special places. And I was an avid hiker and a professional writer. <laughs> and um, I happened to meet the the editor in chief of the of the Mountaineers books. And it had been in the back of my mind. Um, I had noticed there was no there was no book that covered um, hiking to Washington's fire lookouts. And I'd recently gotten a, you know, like a hiking <clears throat> hot springs book. And so I thought, oh, that would be, would be really neat if that book existed. And then I was like, wait a minute, I'm an avid hiker and a writer. <laughs> I should write that book. So um, it kind of just, just all came together. Yeah, and it's a beautiful book. Did you take a lot of the photographs in there as well? I did. I took all the photos. Wow. It's great stuff. Thank you. Yeah, that was, it was really fun. And I did about half of the hikes on my own and about half with friends and family. So just logistically, it, you know, it made sense that I'd take photos um, while I was out there. Yeah. And um, in terms of, this might be a dumb question, but why do we have so many fire lookouts in, in the Northwest? Yeah. Well, we are in a fire-prone area, and so we do have a lot in, in Washington, also in um, Idaho and Montana. So at the time, in the early part of the century, um, as you know, it was, it was clear we were having some um, very catastrophic fires. There was a, um, a huge fire in the Northwest in 1910, and I think it it was just becoming um, more more prominent on the on the national um, and regional radar that uh, forest fires were going to have a big impact on um, on the nearby human populations and structures, and that we needed a way to to spot them 
um, as soon as possible and report them and try to minimize um, damage as much as possible. Yeah, and it's it's amazing the number that I think was it something like there were six hundred or there were, there were several more at some point there were many more of these than currently exist now, right? Exactly. I had I had read between five and six hundred, and then um, recently um, confirmed it was more around the high six hundred six hundred and eighty something, I believe, yeah. just in Washington State. So yes, very um, very popular and and common at the height of their use. And I know during World War II, they were put into use for war purposes. Yeah, that was a um, that was definitely a unique use, um, just for, I, I believe, just a year or two. Um, so most of the ones that are still, you know, that still exist today were built in the early 30s. So 10 years later, when the U.S. entered World War II, um, yeah, they were used briefly as part of the aircraft warning service. So um, instead of instead of just staffing them in the fire season to watch for fires, they were staffed actually year round. Um, I think, and I, again, I think it was just um, like 1942 to 43 or 44. Um, so just for a year or two, um, year round to watch for, for um, enemy aircraft. One of the things that uh, in, in reading your book, the part that intrigued me, or one of the parts that intrigued me was that, you know, there's several that you can reserve in advance to actually camp in or sleep in overnight if you're on a hike. But then there's many that are sort of first come, first served. And I was wondering, I mean, how early in the day do you have to get there to stake it out? And how do you know that it's staked out? Once you, it seems like there might be potential awkwardness out in the woods if, if, you, if you come up against one of these that you want to stay in and somebody's already there or someone gets there just after you. Yes, absolutely. This is a, this is a really good question. Um, so, yeah, right now there are only two that um, they covered in the book that are available um, for rental in advance through recreation.gov, and that way, you know, you put it online, you get the, um, you know, a key or a code from the from the ranger station, you know that that is yours for the night. Um, and then a handful that are available on first-come, first-served basis, um, yeah, it's a little bit of, um, there's a little bit of nuance to to the culture around it, I'd say, and it, it does vary a little bit by lookout. So, for example, there are ones that are just um, extremely popular. Somewhere like Mount Piltek, um, you do have people stay overnight, and that one is um, just a few miles hike in. It's pretty close to Seattle. That one will always. Um, there's no sense of first come first serve. <laughs> Whoever shows up there, you know, I've seen I've seen eight people up there um, from different parties sleeping at a time. Oh wow! There, um, there's enough room for eight people to sleep inside and not like get in each other's. Um, that'd be including outside on the catwalk. Mm. So um, okay. I've seen most most of them that have that are available for overnight. They do have a bed um, platform that you could put your some have a mattress, some don't. You could bring your sleeping bag and sleeping pad. Um, Mount Hillcheck does not have a bed platform, but I've seen hammocks strung up in there, and then people kind of sleeping around the catwalk, especially during um, you know the meteor shower um, oh. season. And so ones like that, um, in addition, him like lookout which is um, also very popular. Um, those ones, it's a little, it's, it's more likely that you will, that you will um, be encountering other, other people as well. Mm-hmm. And then apart from that, you know, I think there is a sort of, um, I personally think that there, there's kind of should be an adherence to that, um, that idea of first come first serve. And so like you're, like you're asking, you know, how do you know, um, often as you're going up to a lookout, um, you know, and people are coming down and they see that you have, you know, an overnight 
backpack instead of a day pack. Um, you know, they might say, hey, you know, there's already two people in the lookout planning to stay overnight because they got there and they chatted. Um, so you do often on your way up have a sense of if there's already people there or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does, it, it does really vary. I've been, um, you know, I've gotten to places by early afternoon and someone was already a lookout for the, you know, planning to stay there that night. And I've also been places where, um, where there wasn't anyone. It just really, just really depends. Huh. And so my, my advice is to not go expecting to stay overnight. So for example, like I will always bring a tent and, um, if, um, you know, if a bear canister is required in that area, I'll bring a bear canister, you know, in case I'm not going to be sleeping mm-hmm. in the lookout for the night. So I think just sort of being prepared, but, um, for anything that might happen and then letting it be a pleasant surprise if you if you do stay overnight then um kind of works out for everybody um you know that said some people some people are okay with you know bunking with um <laughs> you know with multiple parties in there and some people do ask they arrive and say you know hey can you know <laughs> can can i join you guys and that's <laughs> sort of a I'd say a personal a personal style um oh, approach <laughs> only in the northwest would there have to be a fire lookout etiquette code for, for <laughs> camping out in a historic fire lookout. I mean, what I what I love about your book is how it highlights these places you can actually hike to and see. Because so much, so much history is abstract, or it's old black and white photographs in a book or online or something, or a, a podcast like this. But the fact you can actually, you know, just march up and down a trail and find places where these lookouts are still there and they represent these great eras of of local history is is really cool. Um, now, the the history in your book is is great for the individual lookouts and the the general story you tell in the beginning. Do some of these lookouts actually even have like interpretive panels or or more information once you get there? Is there history you can learn from actually visiting the individual sites? They sure do, yeah, and it it really does vary by lookout. So you know, some won't have any, but some have just incredible um, background information. I remember at. Um, a Burley lookout in the South Cascades had, um, you know, kind of information packets with photos and, um, you know, data about when the structure had last been restored and who was involved. Um, Mount Pilchard has wonderful, you know, plaques and, um, you know, will show what surrounding peaks you're looking at and timelines. Hmm. Um, so all sorts of, um, yeah, different displays. Slate Peak in the North Cascades also has um, kind of outside of the building you can't actually go in the structure but it has um really neat plaques showing like the horizon around there so yeah a, a really nice um really nice mix of a different amount of information and for the ones that are um, maintained by by citizen groups or by volunteers there's often information inside about um who to contact in case you want to get involved or be part of um, a work party or a website you can visit so, yeah, definitely valuable information inside. And I was shocked to learn that there's actually some that are still staffed during the summer months by actual fire watchers. Yeah, yeah. I believe that there are six um, of, of the ones I covered um, in the book, uh, which is 44. And that's the basically the western half of, of Washington um, from Highway 97 um, west. So so I don't want to speak for all of Washington, but yeah. of the ones that I visited, um, six were staffed and... Um, and some of those staff by by very long time experienced lookout staff who have been doing it for you know ten to twenty five years. And then I also met um, a couple lookout staff that that was their first their first summer doing it. So um, it runs runs the gamut. And 
and everyone I met was just um, a wealth of knowledge, very happy to share their experience and their um, their passion for fire lookouts. And, um, yeah, and just hearing what their day-to-day experience is like, um, like you said, um, you know, to to know that, that the, the fire spotting was happening um, <clears throat> back in the early part of the century, but then to be able to correlate that with our own firsthand experience today and especially being able to to talk to someone who's who's still doing that is is a really neat experience yeah and i think there was etiquette too about visiting during business hours and maybe bringing a present and all that sort of thing (laughs) yeah yeah so you know especially um in the early part of the century um you know food and your rations for the summer it was it was very limited and very defined um oftentimes you might pack in everything that you need for the summer, um, you know, on a pack mule and on your own back. And that was it for the summer. I mean, that was like, <laughs> you know, your food was very rationed. Um, in some places that were a little more accessible, there might be, you know, one or two or three resupplies throughout the summer. Um, but if you're coming, you're coming in the week for the weekend for the day as a, as a day hiker, it's really a wonderful gesture to bring, um, to bring the things that the lookout stuff might be missing out there for months at a time. So um, fresh fruits and vegetables were very welcome, you know, any kind of um, treat, sweet treat. Um, so it's just kind of a good, um, you know, a good goodwill gesture for um, their service and their um, and their hard work out there. And so that carries over today. If you if you go to one that you know is staffed, um, always a nice gesture. And and to remember that the staff, uh, you know, they're they're working any day that they're there. They're probably on the clock because on the days they're off, um, they will often, you know, go out um, and leave the lookout. So they might be on for five days and off for two days. So if they're there, they're working. So um, I believe their working hours are 9.30 to 6. And so, you know, just, just keep in mind that they're on the clock and, and this is their home for the summer. And it's, it sounds like when they recruit people to do this work that they, they understand that the big part of their job is this sort of interpretive role, being able to, you know, talk to visitors and people, you know, not just like shoo people away, but part of the job is kind of being ambas- being an ambassador for, you know, the organization or the, you know, the whole, what they're trying to get done. So it sounds like a great fit. Um, Absolutely. And is there, you know, I know some of the people listening to this would probably want to just be able to drive to a lookout and be able to walk a short distance. Is there... Any in your book that are sort of really super easy to get to for someone who doesn't think of themselves as much of a hiker? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I use the term hike <laughs> somewhat loosely. Um, so I defined hike as anything that you potentially could walk to. Um, and so the shortest hike in the book um, is two-thirds of a mile. So it's actually just a third of a mile um, each way. Wow. And these these days, um, for a lot of the lookouts, there are um, there's a forest service road that goes all the way to the lookout, but there's a gate um, at some point along the road, and so sometimes that gate is open. So there are many that you can drive straight to, literally mm-hmm. to the to the base of the lookout. Um, but if it's um, the shoulder season, or if it's um, if the if the staff person is you know, has their day, their day off, or for whatever reason, that gate might be closed. And so um, for a lot of these hikes, I've started the description at the gate, assuming that, um, you know, you can't, you can't assume the gate will be open. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you might be doing a road walk that will range from a third of a mile to maybe two miles. So it's nice short walks, and some of them you can drive directly to. 
some of them that I've described the hike um, option, for example, Mount Constitution on Orcas Island um, is in Moran State Park, and there is a really um, a really nice trail um, you can take up there, or you can drive straight to the summit. So uh, my goal was to yeah, provide as much information so that the reader could sort of make a decision about um, what kind of um, hike, walk, or drive uh, they want to have. Yeah, like the, I mean, the the sort of cliche, classic hike to the Jack Kerouac, what Desolation Peak one, that's, I mean, the way you describe the two options in the book there, I mean, that's that's a serious, that's a backpacking trip. That's like <laughs> a mission. That's not a just a kind of a day hike sort of thing. Yeah, and that one is um, is very remote. That is sort of one of the one of the hardest to get to. I believe it's... Um, 40, almost 46 miles round trip um, to, if you go completely by land. And, and I took three days, a three-day backpacking trip for that one. Wow. Um, or you can go by um, boat a lot of the way on on Ross Lake, but that does um, does cost a bit, I believe, yeah. um, over $100 for that boat ride. So either mm-hmm. either way, um, <laughs> it's, it's a haul to get there, but really, really worth it. It, it's amazing how much that, you know, the fact that Jack Kerouac spent that summer there back in the 1950s and wrote about it in a couple different books that he published. I feel like that that one particular summer and that one particular guy is responsible for these lookouts still kind of capturing people's imaginations, you know, so much 50, 60 years later. It's it's pretty amazing. Um, is, was that one worth the hike to see the Jack Kerouac one? Absolutely. I mean, I am partial to the North Cascades. Um, it's a really stunning view with the um, with the Ross Lake right below. So, and you're right by the Canadian border. And that one actually is one of the ones that's still staffed. And um, I've been to that one twice, and unfortunately missed the lookout staff both times. But um, also a wonderful experience if you get to get to chat with with that staff. So I think if for anyone who is up for making that that kind of trek, absolutely worth it. And now it's fall and winter's going to be here before we know it. Um, I know there's probably some of these shelters or, or these lookouts are off limits in the winter season. Are there any that are accessible year round? So a lot of them, um, if they're if they're open to the public, they do remain open in the winter. The, um, the issue is just with going up, you know, this, a steep slope. A lot of these are, you know, are a bit of a a bit of a haul to get there, a bit of a steep climb, even if it's just over a few miles. Um, so it's really knowing avalanche danger in that area. Um, and so, um, yeah, if there's if there's one that you know someone's interested in, I would say just you know looking into the winter conditions on a on a case by case basis. But absolutely, some of them are um, are accessible in the winter time. Got it. Well, it's really nice talking to you. It's a wonderful book. It sounds like it would make a really great holiday present and then look forward to a spring and summer next year of doing some hiking around and visiting some really cool historic locations in Washington. Amber Casali, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you to Amber Casali for speaking with me for this episode of Columbia Conversations from the Washington State Historical Society. Her new book, Hiking Washington's Fire Lookouts, is available from Mountaineers Books. For more information about Columbia Magazine or to subscribe, please visit WashingtonHistory.org. I'm Felix Bunnell.